When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the, mount, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. This is the word of the Lord. A Sunday school teacher said to her children one Sunday morning, We have been learning how powerful kings and queens were in Bible times, but there is a higher power. Can anybody tell me what it is? And one little boy raised his hand and blurted out, Aces! All right, come on, you got to work with me here. All right, I'm going to... Let's try another one on you. All right, here we go. A rabbi said to a precocious six-year-old boy, So, your mother says prayers for you each night. Very commendable. What does she say? And the little boy replied, Every night she says, Thank God he's in bed. <laughs> All right, many of you understand that very well. Yes. There were children lined up in the cafeteria of a Catholic elementary school for lunch. At the head of the table was a large tray of apples. A nun lettered a note and posted it on the apple tray. Take only one. God is watching. Moving along the lunch line, at the other end was a large tray of chocolate chip cookies. A little girl wrote herself wrote a note also for that, which she put next to the tray of cookies. Take all you want. God is watching the apples. <laughs> right. Right. Smart kid. Smart kid. Well, those jokes have absolutely nothing to do with our sermon today. I, I just I just had to start with a joke. I like that. Well, I have always loved airplanes. I love to fly, and I have even been known to go out of my way to keep from getting nonstop flights, just so that I can take off and land several times. It's true. But I especially love looking out the window at the sights below. This summer, my fiance Linda, and her boys, Brian and Ben and I, traveled to California to meet her aunt and uncle and her cousins. And while we were in the air from Houston to San Jose, we traveled over desert 
and mountains. And the view from above was breathtaking, as it always is. I looked and imagined what our forefathers and mothers crossing on covered wagon never saw, a panoramic view of land from an airplane. It's amazing how that changes your perspective of the world around you. Somehow problems don't seem so large from the seat of an airplane. The beauty and the majesty of our beautiful world overtake any petty problems that we have here on the ground. And flying over the Rocky Mountains was especially wonderful. There was snow on the tops of those mountains, and it seemed that we took 30 minutes to cross over them at 600 miles an hour. I imagine the early settlers struggling to get over those mountains and, and thought how many got caught in an early or a late snowstorm. I especially enjoy watching the sun rise and set on an airplane because on an airplane, the sun always shines, right? You just have to get above the clouds to see it. That's a whole other sermon, isn't it, in, in that thought. Where there are no clouds, I, I love watching the sun rise and set right on the horizon. It's the colors that dazzle me, the oranges, the reds, the purples. I'm in another world up there, and I'm just a few miles above the earth. I see the world differently from up there. I feel God closer up there. I'm not any closer to God. I'm just as close up there as I am down here, but it seems different. It reminds me of a book that I got at a bookstore in Wichita, Kansas a few years ago. It sits on the coffee table of my office now. It's a book called Earth from Above by Jan Artus Bertrand. It's a collection of pictures from around the world where the photographer took pictures from above the earth. It's just fascinating. It's pictures of beauty and pictures of tragedy, too, looking down from above. You have the sense that that's how God sees us. When you're looking down upon the world from above, you're somehow transported to another dimension, a place where this world meets the next world. In Celtic Christianity, those places are called thin places. They're places where we come closer to God and feel God's presence stronger than ordinary places. Well, as we look at our scripture today, you know that it's a very familiar text. And it's one that's only found in the book of Matthew. My New Testament professor at Duke, D. Moody Smith and Robert Spivey, talk about this text in this way. They see the shepherds separating the sheep from the goats as an act which asks this question, who has performed acts of compassion? What is surprising is that neither the righteous people nor the unrighteous know that their deeds of compassion uh, were performed or not performed for the Lord. So he says then, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. 
mercy, compassion for the neighbor, and service to others is service to Christ. You don't have to think about whether you will be judged by God more favorably because of your act of compassion. You simply do these things without having to calculate the rewards or the consequences. Those who show mercy and compassion act without any calculation, without the thought that they will ensure their future blessedness. They are compassionate because they have been shown compassion. Their deeds for the neighbor are deeds for Christ, who is present in the very least of them. In other words, what I hear Smith and Spivey saying is that when you become a Christian, you see differently, you hear differently, you walk differently on this earth, because you are no longer your own, but Christ who lives in you. Your perspective is like looking down on the earth from an airplane. Your perspective is turned upside down. And if it's not, if it's not, you really haven't heard what Jesus is saying. You really haven't unpacked the wisdom within the stories and the parables that he tells. You see, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ then you're going to have to see and live and think differently than you're living right now. Life has to be reimagined. You wear a different pair of glasses, shall we say. You walk differently in life. When you see the ordinary, somehow it is extraordinary within the circle of Christ. For whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me, Jesus says. That's what this God-man said. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick or in prison and you visited me. And what did the people, these disciples around him say? They said, huh? What? We never saw you like that. We never saw you hungry. You were always eating. We never saw you naked or a stranger or sick or in prison. We never saw you like that, Jesus. We never saw you in the hungry person or in the naked person or in that homeless person. We never saw you in that drunk on the street sleeping it off, in that prostitute or in that drug addict. We never saw you in that suicide bomber or in the victim. We never saw you in that person at a fat farm or a starving child in Ethiopia. We never saw you like that. We never saw you in our greatest hope and in our deepest despair, in our highest hopes and in our greatest sorrow. We never saw you in our richest pleasure and our most agonizing pain. We never saw you like that, Jesus. And we felt so empty, so desolate. We never saw you like that. So I have a special question for you this morning. 
I want to ask, what is your job in this life? Now, if you hear that, you have a simple answer. Oh, I'm a lawyer. I'm a sign maker. I'm a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. You know, that's an easy one. But what if I asked this question? What is your vocation? Now, that might be a little more difficult. The word vocation comes from the Latin vocare, which means calling. So let me suggest to you that our vocation as Christians is this. It's the place where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Say it with me, all of us. My vocation is the place where my deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That's where God calls us to. It's the place where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And what is our deep gladness? That which brings us joy, of course. That which helps you feel alive. And I hope that your job helps you feel that. I know that mine does, but don't get me wrong. I have my days just like you do, where I get tired of my job. I'm, I'm tired of all the people and the meetings and the coordination of plans. But, but fortunately, those days are much fewer than the days that I love coming to work. I love getting up and getting to my office and working another day. But I am the happiest in those times where my deep gladness and the world's hunger meet. When I am moving beyond myself to bring compassion to another person. When I am giving of my time to a cause that I hope makes the world a better place. Randy Pausch died on July 25th. Now, you've probably heard of Randy Pausch, the man who did the last lecture at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, two years ago. Have you heard of him? See, some heads nodding. Yeah, maybe not all. But, well, let me tell you, this 47-year-old man who was a professor there at Carnegie Mellon was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer two years ago and told he had six months to live. This lecture began with one age-old question. What would you say if you knew you were going to die and had a chance to sum up everything that was the most important to you? That question had been posed to the annual speaker of this lecture series at Carnegie Mellon, where Pausch was a computer sciences professor. For Pausch, though, this, was, this question was more than hypothetical. And there have been so many stories on Randy that I wanted to convey this morning the impact that his life had on countless numbers of people. Because he opened his life up to the world, 
we were able to see what a positive and uplifting story he had to share with everyone. His is a story of changed perspective. Someone who was dealt a difficult hand in life. He had a beautiful wife with three small children. He was a very popular professor on campus. And because his lecture was videotaped, only as an afterthought for those who couldn't come to hear the last lecture, it was subsequently put on the Internet, on YouTube. And uh, it was, uh, his, his story was downloaded then by over 10 million people. Now, if you don't think the Internet has impact on the world, here's a story that tells it. He said things to us about how to live that I think will assist us the closer we get to death. For example, Alfred Nicolosi of Salem, New Jersey, said the night that he watched YouTube, uh, uh, that is, Pausch's lecture on the Internet, was the same night when Randy's life turned his around. Battling depression, cancer surgery, and facing heart problems, Nicolosi says he cleaned up his life, literally. I have never been a very organized person, he said, but this was exceptional. I had allowed piles of boxes, groceries, laundry, books scattered everywhere. There was absolutely no order to my life, no way to find things. It was just lost. So immediately after seeing the lecture, I began to organize my house. And I felt like I was rediscovering my life in the process. Changed perspective. Peter Riebling, a lawyer from Vienna, Virginia, handed his 10-year-old daughter, Kimberly, a pencil and gave her free reign on her bedroom walls. I'm going to get letters about this one, I'm sure. He told me to go draw on my walls, so at first I honestly thought he was crazy because most parents wouldn't let their children draw on the walls, especially when they are brand new and painted and stuffed. So I did start drawing on my walls, and then I actually found it was extremely fun, so I kept doing it, said Kimberly. Well, you have to know the background story. Randy Pausch's parents, at an early age, had allowed him to paint on his own walls when he was a child, and it helped him learn to express himself and led to a very successful life. Diane Gregory from Las Vegas encouraged her teenage son, Matt, to express himself by hanging every piece of sports memorabilia he had collected on his walls. Matt jumped at the opportunity uh, to, with, with tacks and double-sided tape uh, that went, and went to work on that. Harry Wooten, a choir minister from Dallas, used Randy's message to touch his church through prayer and song. And Kajay Lane of Los Angeles, after battling breast cancer, says that Randy inspired her to pursue singing, a passion she had put aside for many years. She said, I think so many people relate to Randy because every one of us has some sort of dream 
they want to make real or some sort of passion they want to tap into if they're not already thinking that way. I think people are just drawn to that. It's very magnetic to see someone positive. Changing your perspective. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. If you don't want change, gosh, don't become a Christian. Now, I know who I'm talking to today. I'm speaking to a congregation, the majority of whom don't want a change like that. We're talking to folks who want to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep things the same. But let me be clear. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to become comfortable with the uncomfortable. The stories and parables of Jesus are designed to help us reimagine our world. Christianity is not for the faint of heart. Your life is literally turned upside down when you give yourself to it, when your heart is strangely warmed, as John Wesley says, or when your heart is set afire by Christ. You just can't envision any other life for yourself. Thomas Cahill is an author and the former director of religious publishing at Doubleday Publishers. He wrote a wonderful book called How the Irish Saved Civilization, in which he writes this provocative statement that it's ironic that some Christians overemphasize the Eucharist, the taking of bread and wine, but have never vowed to heed Jesus' words about the presence of Christ in every individual who is in need. Cahill writes, Jesus told us only once he would be present in bread and wine, but he tells us repeatedly that he is always present in the poor and the afflicted. It is to these, writes Cahill, that we should all bow and kneel. When God is the focus of your life, or to put that better, when kindness and love and compassion are the focus of your life, you are living your life in Christ. You are living with eyes that see the world as though you're living from above. Peering at the horizon and seeing in ways that ordinary people don't see, you have the eyes to reimagine your world. You have the vision to see beyond your everyday lives to a life in Christ that is deeper, richer, more meaningful because you engage life with your heart. So what is your vocation? Or better, what is your calling in this life? It is the place where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. As you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me, Jesus says. So whether you've just become a Christian 
or you've been one all of your life, I hope that you see life differently than before. That you can't walk down the street without hearing differently, walking differently, because you are no longer your own, but Christ who lives in you. Amen.